Growing up, as I've said over and over, uh, summer is such a special time. I love the summer. Uh, one of the things I loved about the summer growing up was the Grand National Tractor Pull that always came to town in Chapel Hill, Tennessee. And it was always around my birthday, which is July the 12th, in case you were wondering when that is. But the tractor pull would come to town, and this was no small tractor pull. I know what some of you are thinking when you hear tractor pull. This was big-time tractor pulling, truck and tractor pulling. And the the tractor pull that that would come to our hometown was one of the biggest uh, pulls in this big series. It was on a lot of the time. It's the tractors with the big jet engines out the side and these massive trucks, and you could hear it for miles and miles around if you want to know what it was like for small town Tennessee, this, this was our derby day when the tractor pull came to town. Except we weren't in seersucker suits and flowery hats. It was your, your newest cowboy boots and the latest co-op feed hat. You put that on and you go down to the tractor pull and all of your friends are there. Uh, ma- it was a massive party every year and this was a big deal, and as this event grew over years and years and years, I remember just watching it grow. It would take over our whole town eventually and still does today. It was at one time just a Friday night event, Friday, Saturday, and then eventually it became like a week-long event in our little small town. It was an event you had to reserve seats for, and it became more and more expensive to attend, and I remember vividly I was a senior in high school when the price was $25 a night. And if you were going to go for four nights, that was going to be $100 a week. And that was just extremely expensive in 1995. And I knew friends who, was, we still got to go. You know, it's party time. We still got to be at the tractor pull. That's still the place to be. And I had friends who, they were so committed to being at the tractor pull, they would climb fences to get in. They would find places in the fence where they could go under and sneak in. And I'll never forget, I had a couple of friends who figured out the way they were going to get in the main entrance was without paying. They were just going to walk through the main entrance and not pay. They said, why not try it? Just walk in like you're supposed to be there. Just act like you're supposed to be there. And I'm thinking, first of all, I'm a rules follower. Like, I don't, I don't do things like that. I try to always follow the rules, and that, that's not a joke. I, I, I can't stand to break rules because I'm scared I'm going to get in trouble for it. So I was like, no way, there's no way that I'm going to do that. And they said, yeah, as the workers are taking up tickets and they're checking people's coolers, just, just look at them and walk in like you're supposed to be there. And amazing enough, it worked. They just walked right in like they were supposed to be there. Now, some of you, that's how you went through college. You did that all the time. You just walked into places like you were supposed to be there. I had a friend who he said, if you just walk in backwards like you're talking to somebody, you can get in wherever you want to go. And it worked for them this night. And I remember being so irritated with them. Because I was paying $25 a night to get in and they were in for free. For breaking rules in such an audacious way. And I remember being so frustrated with them. And I remember one night just hoping they would get caught. 
hoping as they walked in that they would get caught. And I remember looking at them with great jealousy and anger and at times going, you guys ain't even supposed to be here. You broke the rules. And I remember as just the Southern Baptist self-righteous twit, this self-righteousness billowing within me all week watching my friends just do this. How in the world could you do that? You don't have the wristband. You don't have the stamp. You're not supposed to be here, but that's the way you're acting. And that's exactly the way the Pharisees are acting about the Gentiles as Jesus is ministering to them. They think, how did they get in here? They're not supposed to be here. They broke the rules. And yet they're walking up to Jesus. They're walking into the kingdom, just acting such in such an audacious way like this is all for them. And so they conclude this can't be the kingdom in their sinful self-righteousness. You can't just act like you're supposed to be there here because you're not. You don't follow the rules. You don't you don't do the things that we do. You don't have the traditions that we have. You don't have the wristbands. You're not supposed to be here. You didn't pay to get in. And yet one of the things that Jesus is teaching us and as scandalous as it sounds to us, as scandalous as it sounds to the Pharisees, almost breaking the rules, acting like you're supposed to be there is the way faith looks in the kingdom. It's the way, what Jesus calls for, even in our text, as we look at it today. Notice verse twenty four. The text begins, the passage begins that it says that Jesus at this time, he he arose and went away. You could translate this very specifically and say he was up and done with them and he left them because that's exactly what is happening. Remember last week as the Pharisees come to him and they say, why are your disciples not washing their hands? Why, why, when they eat in the marketplace with the Gentiles, they're unclean, their food's unclean, your groceries are unclean. Why are you not washing your hands when you go out among the Gentiles? And Jesus' response to that here, he's done with them, he's done with the questions, they don't get it, they don't understand it's a heart issue, your heart is the most unclean thing within you. It is from your heart that all sin comes from, and they still don't get it. And so that was the last question here in Mark for the Pharisees. Jesus is done, and he pivots, and he moves toward the Gentiles. Jesus makes a strategic, intentional move here where he turns from the Jews, and he goes deep into Gentile country. He leaves Galilee and he begins to go through towns and villages outside of Galilee that are flooded with Gentiles. It is Gentile country. And he begins to take his disciples on a mission trip all the way around Galilee, some 120 miles through Gentile country to teach them that this kingdom that is in flesh in his person Has come for the Gentiles too. And he's going to take them and show them flesh and blood for whom he will die among the nations, the unclean, the outcast, those that the Jews think are disgusting. 
And he, you're going to see story after story here. You're going to see move after move where the Gentiles, people in flesh and blood, they come up to Jesus who are not supposed to be there and they just act like they're supposed to be there. And that's the way into the kingdom. Notice verse 24 again. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, these two places are famous and uh, for being centers of Gentile culture. Tyre is where Jezebel started Baal worship. Tyre, uh, where this the worship of this false god began, became one of the fiercest enemies of the Jews. This is this is where everything they opposed arose from in Sidon, which means Fishtown. It was a place of Gentile commerce. It was known for its purple dye. It, the people flocked to this place from all over the world. And the world experienced the goods of Sidon. But it was a center hub for Gentile culture. And we know when Jesus condemned cities like Bethsaida. And he, he would say to a place like Bethsaida. If Tyre and Sidon had seen the miracles that I performed there, they would repent and believe. And what was the point in that statement? Tyre and Sidon represent the worst of the worst of the Gentiles. Pagan idolatry. And here, this is where Jesus is moving. But notice the way verse 24 ends. And yet, he could not be hidden. And what did we talk about last week? Why the Pharisees, why the scribes, they, they didn't get it. It's because they, they couldn't see Jesus. They missed Jesus. And Mark wants to point out here, they miss him, but the Gentiles see him. He goes into a town and he wants to be hidden in a house, which we see Jesus over and over trying to do to get away from the crowds. And yet he cannot be hidden. And the point of this transition here is to show us the Jews miss the kingdom, but the kingdom can't be hidden from the Gentiles. They see it. And this move in travel, it is to exploit the sort of entitlement that the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Jews have when it comes to the kingdom. They think they're in. They think they're entitled to the kingdom. They do all the right things. They have all of the traditions. They have, they have all of the religion down pat. They have an entitled faith of flesh. And that's why they miss Jesus. And so the kingdom moves away from them. And I want to warn you today of an entitled faith. You will miss the kingdom. The kingdom will move away from you if you come in thinking you're entitled to it. If you think I'm a Christian because this is just where I was raised and who I was raised by. My parents took me to church week after week after week. We did VBS every summer. And, and, and you, you know all of the Sunday school answers. And you come to the gospel and you say, yeah, I'm entitled to it. I deserve it because of who I am. You come in and you say, I'm just special. Sometimes you, you, you drill down in someone's mind and you say, why should God allow you into heaven? And you begin to press and press. And sometimes in the culture we live in today, some people will say, well, it's just me. I don't know. I can't explain it. I'm just special. Maybe you're here today and you think you deserve the kingdom because you're smart. When you heard the gospel, it just made sense to you. 
You read near Christianity and you said, I got this. You, you, you read the track and you got it. Someone explained it to you. You, you were the little child in Sunday school class, the, the Southern Baptist twit. And when they began to tell you the Bible stories, you got it. You knew all the answers. And you think you're here because you're smart. One of the things we see is entitled faith misses the kingdom. Because entitled faith doesn't just walk in, it struts in. Like it's supposed to be here. It struts in with an inkjet printed fake ID. It's not real. It doesn't grant you access to Jesus. But notice the text continues. He goes into this region. He's trying to get away from people, but the Gentiles, they've heard about him. They've seen. And notice verse 25. He's trying to hide from them. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. Now, she's probably known about Jesus before this moment, but she hears that he's in town and she finds out where he is and she comes and she falls down at his feet. Now, this woman, the, the, the term little daughter that she has here, it is a small child. Her small, young daughter is possessed with an unclean spirit. And Mark uses that phrase over and over. It means the spirit, demons that have aligned themselves with Satan, that oppose God's work in the world. Demons who aren't good. They oppose everything God is doing in the world. And we could say they are unclean. They are not whole because they oppose God. They are unholy. And this little girl is possessed by this demon. And so what does her mom do? She falls at Jesus' feet in desperation. Imagine having a demon-possessed child. And imagine the, the normal frustrations that come with parenting, trying to parent a child, trying to teach them right from wrong, teach them to do the right thing. But then your child is possessed by a demon? Imagine the frustration. Imagine the despair. Not being able to control them, not being able to protect them from what's going on in them uh, with themselves. And one of the reasons Mark describes this as an unclean spirit is because it would have made her whole household unclean. She would have been written off in public. Everywhere that she would have gone, they would have said, that's the family with the unclean spirit, the child with an unclean spirit. But notice verse 26 continues. Mark wants to describe the woman. She was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Now, first of all, we have to remember women. They weren't given the same rights as men. And so this woman really was not supposed to have any interaction with Jesus. This wasn't allowed. Coming to Jesus and, and begging at his feet wasn't allowed. But he emphasizes again, she was a Gentile and, and he describes her as a Syrophoenician just to say she was a Gentile of Gentile. She was at the heart of Gentile culture. Notice by birth, this is who she was. And notice she begged him to cast out the demon of her daughter. She comes to Jesus, a Gentile begging over and over and over again. And Matthew tells us that eventually the disciples said, would you just send her away? This is annoying. 
First of all, she's not supposed to be here. She's not supposed to have anything to do with you. She is a woman. She's a Gentile. Her daughter has an unclean spirit. She's not supposed to be among us. And then verse 27. So Jesus says, okay, I'll send her away. You want me to send her away? And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Do you believe Jesus said that? Read the words again. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus said that to a woman. Now remember, bread describes the provision of the kingdom. And we learned that when Jesus fed the 5,000, did something nobody else could do. And eventually taught them that he is the bread of life. To have any part of him, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. He is bread from the kingdom. And here he says he's come to feed the children. And Matthew tells us that Jesus actually said to her after he ignored her for some time, he said, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. And so when Jesus talks about the children here, he's talking about the Jews. He's talking about Israel. He's saying, I came, I came to feed Israel. I came to feed the Jews first. It's not right for me to give the Jews, the Israel's bread, bread from heaven and throw it to the dogs, the Gentiles, which you are. Now, we have to rewire our brains when we think about the term dog. Because in our culture, we think about pets that sit at the table with us and do all kinds of things with us. That's not what's going on here. A dog was a very unclean, ravenous animal that ate scraps on the streets. And here Jesus describes the Gentiles as dogs, and this woman is a Gentile. And so we have to ask the question, is Jesus a racist jerk? Does Jesus need to be canceled? Because a lot of people have canceled him for that very verse. What, what is he doing? What is he saying? Well, first of all, to the disciples, he's putting their words in his mouth. And he is saying out loud what they are muttering to themselves. How can this Gentile come to me, a dog? I'm here for the Jews first. Remember, he's on a mission trip with them to show them the kingdom has come to the Gentiles. That is his purpose. And so he's teaching his disciples here who are uncomfortable with this interaction and he is putting their words in his mouth and saying what they're thinking. But he's also teaching the woman a lesson here. And we could say Jesus is being sarcastic here. She comes up to him and he's using sarcasm. You really? Uh, an unclean Gentile pagan woman coming to me, a rabbi? Really? Don't, don't you know I've come to the Jews first. You have no business being here. And there's some sarcasm here. It'd be the same way if one of your friends who you've never seen at church walked in the building today and you would say, whoa, what are you doing here? The building's going to fall on us. Something like that. That's kind of what's going on here. He's using sarcasm to teach a lesson. But what's beautiful is her response. Notice she answered him, yes, Lord. Now imagine Jesus. A rabbi calling you a Gentile dog. 
And your immediate reaction is, yes, Lord. This is not how you're responding, is it? You jerk. I thought you came to heal people. I thought you were kind. I thought you were compassionate. You just called me a dog? It's not funny. But her response is, yes, Lord. It's a statement of deference. And one of the things we see with this woman is something nobody else has understood in Mark. Notice she says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She is the first to understand a parable in Jesus's teaching in Mark. She gets what he's doing here. He is teaching about the kingdom. And she says, oh, you're going to throw a parable at me? Well, I'm going to flip it on you. And with great wit and sarcasm, she comes right back at Jesus and says, yeah, I get it. I'm a Gentile, but Gentiles get crumbs, too. Gentiles, according to your plan and purposes, they get what's under the table. And here, Jesus and this woman are teaching us something about the kingdom. And here we would we would suspect this woman knows some theology. She knows that God's promises come to and through a Jew. Think about the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and David in the Old Testament that Israel would be God's people, the Jews, his chosen race. And he would give them land. He would give them blessing. He would take care of them. They would be his people. He would be their God forever. Well, that promise comes to a Jew. And here Jesus on the scene is the Jew who inherits all of those promises. Because Jesus is the perfect Jew. He's the perfect Adam. He's the perfect one who fulfills all the law. And so all of the promises are given to him, the perfect Jew. But those promises come through the perfect Jew. Nations. Remember what God told Abraham when he promised him? He said, I'm going to bless you. But in you, all the nations will be blessed. Abraham from Ur will become a Jew who will turn around and bless all the nations. And here, Jesus is the Jew that the promises come to, and he is the Jew that the promises come through to the nations. And she gets it, and she understands it, that by faith, the Gentiles get the promises of the Jews that fall off the table. That they, like little kids, will rake off the table because they don't want them. And the Gentiles, even the dogs under the table, will devour the crumbs of the kingdom. And she comes to Jesus and says, I'm here for the crumbs. And notice what Jesus said to her. He says, for this statement, you may go your way. This profession of faith. And in Matthew, he says, your faith is great. Your faith is large. Your faith is outstanding. Jesus would look at this woman almost with a puzzled look, amazed of all the people who are doubting, of all the people who are rejecting him, of his disciples who just don't get it. They don't get the parables. Here she gets it. And I imagine he looked at her almost with a puzzled look going, amazing. You, a Gentile woman, get it. You get it. This is great. This is outstanding. You could translate in Matthew. He says, what an answer. Yes, you get it. And he says, go home for the demon has left your daughter. 
And can you imagine the joy that overwhelms her? Her faith. Sprinting home. Verse 30 says, when she went home, she found the child lying in the bed and the demon was gone. A picture, a window into the kingdom of all that had haunted her. Of all of her despair. Of, of everything that marked the 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 in her life she walks into that house and the demon is gone can you imagine the joy she experiences the power of the kingdom in her midst what is to come in the kingdom as all evil will be vanquished and here jesus is teaching us something about his mission when jesus was in the synagogue in his hometown and the jews were skeptical He told them about Elijah, who Elijah, during a time of a famine, went to another Gentile woman, a widow, to be fed. And he resurrected her son, healed her son. And Jesus would say to the Jews in his own town, I have come for sheep of another fold. You reject me. okay? I'm going somewhere else because that's his mission. That's what he's come for. And Mark counters this story of this Gentile woman with the Jewish official. Remember earlier in Mark when we hear about Jairus and his daughter that is sick, the Jewish, the synagogue official, and he heals his daughter. And here Mark throws this in to counter that story. You have a Jewish man whose daughter is healed. And now you have a Gentile woman whose daughter is healed. And what is his point? The curse affects us all. The same curse affects us in different ways, but it is the curse. And the only solution for that same curse, the curse of sin and death in the world, is the same Savior. Jairus needed Jesus and this Gentile woman needed Jesus. It's the same Savior for all men, Jew and Gentile. And the solution is the same faith. Now, why is that good news for you today? Because most of us here today, we're not ethnic Jews. And all of us are sinners. And apart from Jesus, you are an unclean Gentile. Apart from Jesus, you are haunted by the curse of sin. And you are in a desperate situation that only he can deliver you from. That's who you are. You are a condemned sinner apart from Jesus. And the promise in the kingdom only comes to sinful Americans the same way it comes to any other people group. By faith in Jesus Christ. There is no entitled faith that gets you into the kingdom. We're not entitled to it. We are Gentiles. And it's the same for the Southern Baptist deacon who's taking up the offering or your Muslim co-worker who is fasting during Ramadan or your homosexual neighbor who is flying a rainbow flag to celebrate Gay Pride Month. Same Savior, same faith. And that is what Jesus is teaching us here. You see, this interaction would be like today, let's say that... uh, A homosexual woman comes in the back door right now. And we all know that she's one of the ladies that walks the streets in downtown Richmond. She's a meth addict. 
and she has tattoos all over her arms and on her neck. And she comes in and and when the service is over, she begins to to walk forward and, and we begin to smell something really bad as she comes forward. And imagine her coming up here and talking to me. And imagine my mic was left on, which actually happened last week during a song. Don't go back and listen to that service. But imagine my mic was on. And as she grabbed my hand, I said to her, you're not supposed to be here. What would go through your mind? Some of you would say, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was really that was really awkward and this is really uncomfortable. But come on, man. You shouldn't be saying you're not supposed to be here to her. You're a pastor. This is a church. You, you preach the gospel. You preach about telling everyone the gospel. You just preached a sermon about a Gentile pressing in on Jesus for the sake of the gospel. Imagine hearing me say that the, the, the scandal that would go through your mind. And then imagine her saying, I know. I know, but Jesus said I could come. Imagine. And here, Jesus is painting that picture for us. You're not supposed to be here. I know, but you said I could come, and that's why I'm here. And that's what the kind of faith that we must all have. You must understand you're not supposed to be here. You are a sinner, and your sin is infinite against a holy God, and you can't make up for your sin and of yourself. You're not supposed to be accepted by God, but Jesus says you can come. And here this woman replaces an entitled faith with an aggressive faith. We often think faith is to be passive. That we just sit back and we wish and we hope something good will happen. Here, she is aggressive. Tim Keller says she has a rightless assertiveness. She's not supposed to be there, but she's going to assert herself by faith. She says if Jesus opens the door, she will not be denied. And when faith is based on truth, it should be aggressive, right? Her faith is based on truth. And so she pesters him relentlessly based on truth. Based on the truth of the gospel. She even here in this parable, the interaction with the parable, she throws the truth of the gospel up to Jesus. That's how audacious and aggressive she is with her faith. I know I'm not supposed to be here. But by the truth of the gospel and the truth of the good news, you said I could come, so I'm coming and I won't be denied. And she presses in with an aggressive faith. And she doesn't deny she's a disqualified dog. Gentile, but she doesn't deny the gospel either that says, come. It's the same thing Paul would say. The truth is that he he understood himself as the chief of sinners, but he also understood the truth. Jesus died for the ungodly. Your disqualification is what qualifies you. And that's the truth. And that's the truth that you must live in by faith that, yes, I am disqualified, but that's what qualifies me. I am ungodly, but Jesus died for the ungodly and says, come. You see, some of us had dads who they would agree to things. You know, they, if you're a dad, your kids, you're on the way home from uh, school, a ball game or somewhere, and your kids ask you to do something. You don't even know what they say. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, yeah, I'll get you that. 
And a few days later, hey, are we going to, to buy that? Are we going to that place? And you look and say, what are you talking about? No, you, you told me that, that I could, we could go, we could get those shoes, we could go, we could do whatever it is. And you don't remember. And then your child begins to pester you. Now let's go. You said we could go. You said we could go. And, and just keeps pestering and pestering and pestering. And eventually, stop asking. Be patient. Be patient. Stop. And then as a child, you understand there's a balance to making sure your parents remember what they said. And there's a thin line between them remembering and then just getting irritated and ignoring you, which is my kids know if you press that line, I'm just going to ignore you because it's irritating. And then there's this little battle of wills. But here, here's the issue with God. He doesn't care that you pester him with what he's promised you with. He wants you to. Yes, I remember that promise. Yes, it's sealed in the blood of my son. The universe exists to declare that promise to you. All eternity will remind you of that promise. And so the father says, come, pester me, remind me of it. It doesn't irritate him. God isn't saying when you come to him and you say, you said you would forgive me. He's going, dang it. That came, that promise came back to bite me. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, yes, I did promise you that. And here is forgiveness, because every time you remind God of his promises, it makes him look large. It makes him look glorious. It makes him look magnificent. It makes the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, look glorious and good. And he says, remind me, pester me. Don't leave that promise on the shelf. You come and you bring it over and over and over again. God, do you remember the gospel? Oh, yes, I remember the gospel. Do you remember the gospel? God's okay with it. Faith can be aggressive when it's based on the truth of the gospel, but faith should also be aggressive when it's based on the endless supply of the kingdom. Notice this woman doesn't argue that she's not supposed to be there. Her argument is, yes, but there's enough on the table for me. There's enough there. And this fits into the feeding of the 5,000 that we said was probably 25,000. And then in a few weeks, we're going to talk about the feeding of the 4,000, which was probably 18,000 people. And so Jesus performs that miracle among Jewish people. And then he goes into the Gentile territory and he performs the same kind of miracle. And what happens at the end of both of those miracles? He tells his disciples, go out and get the crumbs. Go out and get what's left over. And after the first miracle, there's 12 baskets left over. And then there's seven baskets left over in the Gentile desolate area. And what it, this is where this parable fits in the feeding of the 5,000. It fits. So when we hear the word crumbs, we're thinking about bread that was left over. We're thinking about bread that there's enough there for everybody. Jesus tells his disciples, you go out and you gather the leftovers in baskets because he wants to teach his disciples there is more than enough bread even in the crumbs for Jews and Gentiles. And this woman knows everyone gets crumbs. The cool kids don't take up all the seats and eat all that's at the table. There's enough for her. That's what her argument is. 
Not, not necessarily that she gets a little bit that falls from the table. She just knows what's on the table is more than enough. And that's why your faith can be aggressive when you come to God. Because the gospel is more than enough. It's more than enough. The blood of Jesus is more than enough to pay for all of your sin. And so you can come over and over and over again. Feasting on the gospel. That the blood of Christ was shed for you. The righteousness of Christ is enough to cover all of your righteousness. And so what Jesus says is come. There's more than enough. Come believing there's more than enough on the table for you. And be aggressive. Be aggressive in your faith in coming to the gospel. You must aggressively every day turn from your sin that disqualifies you and turn to the Savior that qualifies you. You must turn from it every day. You realize the only sin that disqualifies you of heaven is the sin you keep clinging to. And that you want more than Jesus. And so every day you turn from that sin and you turn to Jesus. You turn from the sin that has disqualified you to the Savior that qualifies you. And you believe there is more than enough gospel for all your sin. You aggressively turn from the truth of your guilt to the truth of the cross. You see, you don't deny all that you've done that would keep you out of heaven or away from you. You don't deny that. You don't try to cover it up. You say, no, that's who I am. She says, I know I'm a Gentile. I'm not a part of this. And you say, no, I'm a sinner. And, and, and the, those things that I did, the darkest moment of sin in my life, it is true. It is real. It is not a fairy tale. It is not make believe. I, by the desires in my heart, I chose to do those things, that thing. That is who I am. You tell the truth about that. But you also turn from that and turn to the truth of the cross. Because as dark as your sin is, Golgotha was much darker. And you turn to the darkness of Golgotha and say, there, he paid for it all. I did it all, but Jesus paid for it all. And you know what? This continual turning from sin, turning from your doubt to believe the gospel, turning from your guilt to believe the gospel, turning from your despair to believe the gospel, turning from your insecurity to believe the gospel, turning from all of those things to the Savior. You know what that is? That's acting like you're supposed to be here. Because that's the life of the Christian. Because the closer you get to Jesus, the more you see your sin and the more you turn from your sin and the more you turn to Jesus. And it means every day going to a place where Jesus went, even though he was not supposed to be there. Because that's where we're supposed to be. But we stand at the cross and we say, yes, Lord. But even the crumbs have fallen to me. Your body that was broken there, the crumbs have fallen to me and have given me new life. 